0: The following audio is from the Springs Church. More information about the Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Good morning, Springs Church. Good morning. Welcome to each and every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ today. It's good to be back with you. There is a new tiny human in our house. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much. Asher James Vanderzee, he's doing great. He's over a couple weeks now. Mother's doing great. We're having a blast. We're exhausted, but we're having a blast. And so I just want to thank everybody, thank each and every one of you for all the well wishes and the prayers and the meals. All the ways that you've blessed us. We would have probably come home from the hospital to a house that was underwater if it not, were not for Brad and uh, my father-in-law. So big and small, thank you so much for all the ways that you guys have blessed us over the last couple weeks. But it's good to be back with you, and I wanted to remind you that next Sunday begins the season of Advent. So we'll have four weeks in Advent, the gospel of peace. This is the time of year when the springs, when the church both celebrates the time of anticipating Jesus' first coming and also anticipates his second coming on earth. And so this is a great couple weeks, four weeks for us. Always enjoy this time of year. And so I hope you'll be here next Sunday, December 1st, as we kick off Advent, the gospel of peace together. This morning, we're finishing up When You Pray, the Lord's Prayer. And I want to thank Ben, especially. Another great blessing was him grabbing several sermons in a row so I could have a little paternity leave. So big, big thanks to Ben. He's been rocking it. I've been hearing from afar. So we're finishing out When You Pray, our series on the Lord's Prayer. So let's go ahead and begin by standing and praying the Lord's Prayer together once again. Our Father in heaven, About seven years ago, I started praying the Lord's Prayer. It was probably around the year 2013, and it was early on in Lara's and my marriage, which those first couple years were amazing in many ways, but also, honestly, very challenging in other ways. And it was also a time in my life where two people very, very close to me had come to me and confessed that they were pretty sure they didn't believe in God anymore, which was kind of a blow for me for a number of reasons, partly because I was also really struggling with belief at the time. I had just started grad school, graduate theological studies, and what many preachers may not say from the pulpit is that while seminary and grad school are an amazing, wonderful, exciting time, For some, they can also be a real crucible of doubt to walk through. And they were for me. And so this was a difficult season in some ways. And I can't put an exact date on things, but it was somewhere around the turn of 2013 that the Lord's Prayer became important to me in a way that it really never had been before. You see... Growing up, prayer had come pretty easily to me, just as I think faith had come pretty easily to me. And I think sometimes when we struggle with faith, one of the first casualties can be our prayer life. But during this season, the Lord's Prayer was something simple and solid, something tried and true that I could return to. The Lord's Prayer gave me words when I often felt like I couldn't muster them on my own. We, I think, sometimes believe that the truest thing we could possibly pray is something extemporaneous, but while that's an important part of prayer, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we're praying the words of truth itself, Jesus himself, who is the master and the model of this prayer. And so the Lord's Prayer became very important to me because let's just say during this time the arteries of prayer were kind of blocked for me and the Lord's Prayer, it was like this little stint that kept the blood of belief flowing in my life. It's been an important prayer to me. And I'm not just saying this because I'm preaching it this morning but I do really think that maybe the most important line of the prayer is the final one. "Is Yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, the glory, forever. Amen. And it's a little ironic because, as some of you might know, some of you may have heard this or forgotten or just had never heard, but this final line is actually not in our earliest and best biblical manuscripts. Actually, the earliest and best manuscripts of Matthew 6 end with the line that Ben preached last week. They end with, deliver us from evil. So if you've opened up a modern translation recently, most of them will take this last line. It's not in the regular body of the text. It's in a footnote. And so it's actually not in our earliest and best manuscripts, but it's in a lot of manuscripts, and it's in there very early. So what it looks like is that the early church added this line in as they would pray this prayer in worship. That the early church very quickly tacked this line on to the end because it was part of their liturgy. It was part of how they prayed the Lord's Prayer when they got together to worship with one another. And so it's not in the earliest manuscripts of Matthew, but there is something very, very akin to it in First Chronicles of all places. Towards the very end of 1 Chronicles, it says, Yours, O Lord, are the greatness, the power, the glory, the victory, and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and on the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. So, while it's not in the earliest manuscripts that we have, as N.T. Wright points out, it's basically inconceivable that Jesus would have actually just ended the prayer on deliver us from evil. That's just not the way that Jews prayed in that day. They always had a doxology. They always had this closing kind of line. And so, it's possible that something like this was really intended from the beginning. And at the very least, we can say that this line is a beautiful summary of really the entire prayer, and it's a fitting ending when we pray as the early church prayed. In fact, it's a fitting line because this final line brings us back to the beginning. In a sense, when we pray this final line, we return to where we began. We end as we began. We end in God. Remember, we started our Father in heaven. That's what we call the invocation, because we're invoking, we're we're appealing to our subject, the person that we are praying to. The invocation, our Father in heaven, that's who we're praying to. And from the invocation, we go to, depending on who you ask, six or seven petitions. Some people squeeze the last two together. Most people think it's seven. But we've got, God, let your name be hallowed, your kingdom come, your will be done. And all three of those petitions are supposed to happen on earth as it is in heaven. And then we ask for daily bread. We ask for forgiveness of sins. We ask not to be led into the time of trial and we ask for deliverance from the evil one. So we've got invocation, and we've got petition, 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 petition. And we land this morning in what we call doxology. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Doxology, you've heard that word before. It really just means like an utterance of praise, a word of praise. We sing a song here called doxology, praise God from whom all blessings flow. And actually, yours is the kingdom, the power, the glory, that Greek word for glory is doxa. Doxa. So doxology is just this word of of glorification, a word of praise, of ascribing worth and honor and glory to someone or something. And so, while we end as we began in God, notice that our voice has changed. Notice that the mood, actually, of our speech has changed because we've moved from petition, from asking for things, to simply stating something, simply declaring so, no longer are we asking for God's name to be hallowed. We're simply saying, Lord, your name is glorified. You have the glory. No longer are we asking for his will to be done on earth and heaven. We're simply saying, the power is yours. You have the power. No longer do we ask for the kingdom. We simply say, it's yours forever, and amen. So we end as we began, but our voice has changed. Our voice has changed. We're not asking for things anymore. We're simply full-throatedly saying, God, yours is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. That is doxology. It's praise. And so we find here in the doxology that the kingdom of heaven touches earth in prayer. The kingdom of heaven touches earth in prayer because we begin to echo the worship of heaven. We begin to echo heaven's liturgy, to sing in tune with the heavenly host. Listen to them in chapter 5 of Revelation, verse 11. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels surrounding the throne and the living creatures and the elders. They numbered myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands singing with full voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slaughtered to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Then I heard... Every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, singing, To the one seated on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. We're in a throne room, and the power and the glory. Are gods. Because we are now echoing the liturgy of heaven. We're echoing heaven's worship when we move to this final line of doxology. The kingdom of heaven begins to touch earth in our prayer when we move to the praise of the doxology. And it is this heavenly prayer and praise that resists the gates of hell. It is this heavenly prayer that pushes back against the forces of darkness. It is this part of the Lord's Prayer that really beats back against those forces, and it's significant that Ben preached Deliver Us from the Evil One last week. It's significant that the doxology follows on the heels of the evil one because this is precisely what the evil one wants. The kingdom, the power, and the glory is precisely the territory that the enemy is after. Look at Luke chapter 4 in Luke's account of the temptation of Jesus He says that Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days and when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to him, if you are the Son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. Jesus answered him, it is written, one does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led him up The devil shows him the kingdoms, He shows him the power, the authority, he shows him the glory, and he says, it's mine, I want it, and I'll give it to you if you worship me. This is precisely the territory that the enemy, that the evil one, is disputing, is trying to contest, is trying to make us believe as a lie. And so it's significant that the doxology comes after deliverance from the evil one because how does Jesus fight back against the evil one? Jesus answered him, it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve only him. The doxology, this uncompromised prayer of confident praise, is a powerful weapon of the Spirit against the forces of darkness. In other words, doxology beats back the devil. Praise, honor, glory, power, doxology beats back the devil. And that's how we learn to pray in the Lord's Prayer. There's a really fascinating chapter in a Malcolm Gladwell book called Outliers that talks about why Korean Air used to have so many plane crashes. In the 90s, for instance, Korean Air had 17 times the plane crashes that United Airlines had during the 90s. So it was a huge problem, and they actually resolved it Uh, Pretty quickly, they figured things out, and now they're just as safe as any other airline, any other top airline in the world. And so what seemed to be the problem that Gladwell points out and others have said is something linguists call mitigating language. Mitigating language, we all use mitigating language at different times. We use it when we're trying to be polite. We use it when we're trying to be deferential to authority or if we're embarrassed or ashamed. And so, for instance, here's mitigating language. If you are the boss and you need something by Monday, you're probably just going to say, hey, get that to me by Monday. Just clear, simple, I need that by Monday. But if you are the subordinate talking to your boss, you're probably not going to say it quite so succinctly. You're going to say, hey, not a big deal if you can't do it, but if you get a chance to look over this over the weekend, that would be super helpful. Thanks. Right? You see the difference? One is just kind of clear and simple, and then the other one is mitigated. Right? And so there are a lot of different settings where this is useful. Mitigating language is It belongs in a lot of different places, but one of the places that it doesn't belong is the cockpit of an airplane, right? An airplane is somewhere where information is vital, and it needs to be shared very quickly and fearlessly, and so one of the problems that they saw in these crashes was that Korean co-pilots were having a tough time speaking openly and clearly to their captains, their bosses. This kind of has to do with Korean cultural dynamics and the way that power and authority works. But so instead of, for instance, saying something like, hey, captain, you've committed us to a visual ascent and we can't see anything, we need to be using our radar. Instead of saying it like that, you might say something like, it sure rains a lot in this area, doesn't it? Right? Or, or you might say, Captain, that weather radar has been really, really helpful. So obviously, this is not a recipe for success in the cockpit, especially when you're like headed towards the side of a mountain or something. And so mitigating language, again, it's useful, but it's not something that belongs in the cockpit of a plane. And likewise, mitigating language is useful for us, but it doesn't have a place in the doxology of the Lord's Prayer. This is not the place for mitigating language. This is not the place where we hymn and haw around the subject matter, or we kind of hint at things, or we try to just deferentially place our request before God. There's places for that. But the doxology is the place of unmitigated, full throated declaration of praise. The doxology is the place of unmitigated, full throated worship and praise of the God whose kingdom and power and glory reign forever. The enemy wants our mitigated speech. He wants our uncertainty. He wants us to hesitate here because that's the territory he wants. But doxology beats back against the devil. It is our unmitigated, full-throated. It's our revelation worship prayer. It's Revelation 5.12. We are singing with full voice, worthy is the lamb that was slaughtered to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing the Lord's prayer ends in unmitigated doxological praise. And I think we find that when we pray, and when we pray our way into God's world, when Jesus teaches us how to pray, he's not just teaching us how to pray, he's teaching us how to live. He's not just teaching us how to pray. He's teaching us the the prayerful posture from which all of Christian life begins and is lived. So when we declare, when we proclaim that the kingdom is God's, we learn that we don't have to live with divided loyalties anymore. We don't have to live with loyalty to that kingdom and that kingdom and my kingdom and your kingdom. We don't have to hedge our bets which is something that people will do, actually. Powerful people, tech moguls, billionaires, they will actually hedge their bets by donating to both parties in the same race so that they've got favors to cash in no matter who wins. We don't hedge our bets. When we proclaim that the kingdom is God's, we proclaim our undivided loyalty to his reign. In the same way, We don't seek after phony power anymore. We don't seek after the powers of this world because we know that the power is yours. That the power is God's and God's power comes in a manger and it goes all the way to the cross of powerlessness. And We don't seek after those bogus glories anymore when we learn how to pray our way into God's kingdom. We don't seek the bogus glories of Madison Avenue or Sunset Boulevard. We don't seek the bogus glories of a perfectly curated Instagram. We don't seek those bogus glories because we know that the glory is yours forever. Amen. And we know what that true glory looks like in Jesus Christ. for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory. When Jesus teaches us how to pray, he's not just teaching us how to pray, he's teaching us how to live. In the wee small hours of the night when I was trying to sleep on the hospital's dad couch, when I was learning how to swaddle and change diapers and learning how to live without sleep and being in awe of Lara, being in awe of this little new human life, I read a little book on the Lord's Prayer. And it was a book that I had ordered weeks and weeks ago that had just happened to be released and shipped on the exact day that we left for the hospital. And so in the small hours of the night in this tender presence of new human life and by the glow of my book light that is sometimes the bane of Lara's existence Wesley Hill writes this he says this is what the final praise in the Lord's prayer means to direct us toward there is coming a time when we will have no more need to ask God for bread for absolution or for rescue all of our tears will have been wiped away. Death will have been finally defeated and the earth and its people will be at peace and thriving. Petitions will not be necessary in God's future. We will cease asking God to supply our needs since we will be entirely satisfied. All that will remain is to praise God. To enjoy his benevolent reign, to rejoice in what his power has achieved, and to see his glory. All that will remain is to praise God. The ironic thing about this final line not being in the earliest biblical manuscripts is that it's really the only line in the prayer that has any eternal significance. This final line is really the only line that will actually last because we won't have to ask God for His name to be hallowed, for His will to be done, for His kingdom to come, because it will already be so. We won't ask for daily bread because we'll be satisfied. We won't ask for forgiveness of sins because there will be none. We won't ask for deliverance from evil because, praise God, the powers of darkness will have finally passed away for good. All that will remain is to praise God, is to say yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory from everlasting to everlasting. Praise Jesus, amen. Let's begin to echo that praise of heaven, church.